Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and the... Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and the Garfield Firm. Servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now sitting in for Neil this week, it's your host, Charles Marshall. Hello, everyone. Listeners of all kinds from all different places. This is Charles Marshall, and I'm here to discuss uh, details of a number of topics. Uh, Some of these topics are COVID-related. And then Bill will be speaking, Bill Padalo. Welcome, Bill. Hi, Charles. Good to be here. Yeah, so uh, Bill will be speaking later on the show. We'll be addressing uh, this issue of tracing which is a kind of fundamental term uh, used throughout the financial services industry. And Bill will be discussing its application in the securitization environment, how it potentially can be used in the litigation environment on behalf of borrowers, both plaintiff and defense borrowers. Now, on the COVID front, there are a number of issues that can be clarified on the show today. And with, with all things COVID, it's kind of like the mortgage securitization arena itself. It's complicated. It's variable. It's subject to an overlapping series of details some of them conflicting, some of them confusing. For instance, I think everyone knows, uh, and if listeners don't know this, uh, I will address it briefly, uh, that while there is a national policy of sorts on the whole COVID-19 lockdown situation, all of that is so far presented in a persuasive uh, framework. The the edicts, the actual prohibitory regulations related to where you can go, when you can go, how you have to shop at the grocery store, all that type of thing, whether restaurants are open, there is a wide variety of, of variation. And a number of states actually even at this date, April 23rd, are not in shelter-in-place, do not have lockdown orders. So there are only a half a dozen of them, among them Utah, for instance, uh, Wyoming, and both Dakotas. So it's interesting that some states have completely avoided shutting down 
And I'm not going to get into some deep medical analysis. I'm certainly not a medical person. Everyone knows that my uh, expertise on this show, if one would call it that, uh, the topics I talk about uh, relate to legal matters, uh, though the disclaimer, of course, I always give and I'll give now is uh, there's no legal advice being provided on this program. This is a topic show. Uh, nevertheless, I will also say on behalf of Neil that this show is brought to you by livinglies.me and any donations that you're able to provide to this show uh, will be available to be provided on Neil's blog at, at livinglies.me and that's an excellent place to go to help advance the cause that Neil and I, we, we try to, we endeavor to uh, push forward through this show. So on this COVID front, uh, one of the interesting uh, aspects that I've seen breaking down a lot of the details in the California-related orders, for instance, on evictions, it's not as if there's a true uh, forgiveness of any kind. In fact, I don't even know that one could call it a forbearance. On the eviction front, the, the rent amounts will continue to tally. In fact, there's not even a statewide policy about late payments. Now, some cities and some counties in California will allow you to essentially waive late payments during this lockdown period, but a number of counties and cities will not do that. And it's important from a post-foreclosure, post-auction point of view. So if you're in your place post-auction, you either have had an unlawful detainer lawsuit filed already, particularly if you've had one filed already, because if it hasn't been filed already as a practical and legal matter, you're not subject right now anyway to a new eviction lawsuit. But if your lawsuit was in place, let's say post-auction, as an unlawful detainer case in California, when the uh, Governor Newsom's order on this all came down in mid-March, well, you still have a per diem risk uh, if that is part of your lawsuit, meaning in the unlawful detainer environment, sometimes the borrowers who fall into this program when we do take calls, which isn't very often, but we have done it over the years, or who are regular listeners, uh, they will know that when you have an eviction lawsuit in California, or for that matter, elsewhere after an auction sale, sometimes the supposed new owner will try to charge you for each day that you quote-unquote hold over possession. So those days are going to continue to be tallied up even though your case can't proceed to trial right now in California. Now, on the mortgage front, there are certainly some worrisome signs. Uh, and it's not just because literally 20 million people plus have applied for unemployment benefits in the last month, which it won't surprise anybody to know, is 
American historical, even if you take into account the Great Depression, even the per capita numbers, looking backward, over this period of time, it's never happened before in American history. This large proportion of the workforce applying for unemployment benefits. Uh, the other thing that's happened, and this is one of the big topics for today's show, is there was issued recently what's called the Federal CARES Act, otherwise known as the Coronavirus Relief Bill. And I think a lot of listeners, uh, whatever your persuasion and whatever your reasons for listening, will have some familiarity with that. And it won't be a surprise to a lot of listeners to know that the big bank lobbyists have commandeered this uh, money pool, the literally trillions of dollars coming out of this money pool. And there was allocated uh, somewhere in the range of $350 billion for uh, small business loans uh, that, Again, it won't surprise a lot of people to know has been eaten up by a lot of large firms. In fact, uh, Senator Marco Rubio, of all people, has essentially fired off a letter to uh, our well-known institutional—I uh, won't call them friends—but they are the big banks out there that we talk about all the time on this show. We're talking Chase, we're talking Wells Fargo, we're talking Bank of America. Those are three of the big institutional providers where they were supposed to be giving a lot of loans to small business people, and it was supposed to be done on a first-come, first-served basis. And surprise, surprise, even some preliminary audits are showing that a lot of that money appears to have gone to favored customers of the bank who are not necessarily are really a small business. And I think that's another aspect that people will have heard about that, in fact, a lot of bigger institutions have been lining up and taking this money. Some of them will need to give it back. There's going to be a safe harbor period that Rubio will establish in terms of the big bank loans. We'll see how that all goes. Uh, Meanwhile, in the mortgage market itself, uh, borrowers will know that there have been a lot of uh, even record low mortgage rates in the months preceding this uh, COVID-19 period. Uh, however, and again, I'll, I'll, I'll revisit it real quickly. Uh, I will have a bit of an extended discussion on one of the main topics, which is essentially how uh, the big bank lobbyists, they've directed a significant portion of the monies from the CARE Act, which, of course, is supposed to go to a lot of different ostensibly needy organizations, or in the case of the big banks, to prop them up in some ways. Now, this money is being used to prop up mortgage servicers, and under the arrangement where the securitized loan at issue is backed by either Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, services are directed to pay investors to those trusts for four months. 
then Fannie and Freddie, through the stimulus money, will pay those same investors for a period of eight months after the four months period expires. One would reasonably ask, why would servicers be directing any monies to mortgage securitization certificate holders? After all, the services are not a party to the indenture on certificates purchased by investors. Uh, we hear a lot in court proceedings involving securitized mortgage borrowers that they, the borrowers, have limited or even no legal challenge rights read the securitization process, meaning they have no standing. Uh, because they, the borrowers, weren't a party to the original securitization. Yes, that's exactly the position of the services. I can see the lenders coming back and say, oh, but the services are acting on our behalf as agents. And then that, of course, finesses, did they have proper agency relationships established? Did they have proper agreements to supposedly execute those agency relationships? And, of course, borrowers who will listen to this show will know that in many cases the answer to those Connections between the servicers and the purported mortgage trust holders are finessed, sometimes fraudulent, sometimes fabricated, and sometimes bonafide, more often not, and particularly the litigation that goes forward to address these issues. These issues. So, uh, more broadly, when you look at okay, how the investment banks, now they've maneuvered in and essentially redirected a lot of the CARES Act money to the services of the mortgage loans to be then redirected to the so-called certificate holders, investors. It looks like a lot of people are being paid off here. Why are the borrowers paying anybody, and this is a question Neil repeatedly asked with good reason, since in this whole mortgage uh, securitization scheme, essentially the investment banks are using the same pot of money at origin to position money back to themselves, and a bunch of people are paying from the same pot of money and yet, at the end of the day, the borrowers are are still obligated on the loan, and they're still paying on this loan. But it looks like a bunch of people have already been paid on the loan. And one way to look at this is to come back to this whole concept that I talk about at times called contrived complexity. And Neil's take on this is here you have home buyers they're overly relying on sellers to explain the securitization process. This was certainly true back in 2008, and we had another major round of the same craziness in mortgage lending with the same rabid securitization, which does still exist, by the way. Then we would have some, something similar to today. Um, one needs to remember that the theoretically straightforward process of taking out a home loan was allowed to be converted at a mass scale back in the mid-2000s to a complex securitization process, essentially without homeowner pushback or even notice. So borrowers 
didn't even know their money their, their, their money was being directed to a party who was then sometimes within days securitizing a loan, sometimes even with hour, within hours. And all of a sudden their, their commitment of money is going who knows where, and then when they try to unwind it later, they're told they don't have standing to do so. Uh, you know, the other aspect to this that I think Neil as well uh, looked at is you know, the, big, the big investment firms use labels so that they get to control the interpretation that is brought into this whole securitization area. By creating a lot of their own investment verbiage, they control the dialogue, they control the thinking, and they ultimately control the analysis of these issues. Yeah, everything the investment banks have done is they've used underwriting norms in which the issuer is the underwriter. Now, that allows investment banks to keep that money from the originating loan in-house. And it also needs to be kept in mind that drawing home buyers into easy money mortgage loans, and remember, it was the low documentation, it was even the no documentation loan, in the mid-2000s that crashed the mortgage industry, that drawing home buyers into these easy money mortgage loans allowed so much of the money to flow into this mortgage arena. And since the securitization process allowed the ultimate funders, the investment banks, to pass on the risk completely outside of themselves, remember these these uh, securitized loans, the pools in which they individually existed, remember the securitized pools might have six, eight, even 9,000 loans in one pool. And remember, those were all triple rated. They were all triple bond rated. And yet there was nothing ultimately backing them. And that it led to their unraveling. Uh, because borrowers may remember that even a 10% default rate could wipe out a pool. And by the way, given this literally catastrophic tanking of the economy, particularly the millions and millions of people who already were having trouble paying their mortgages and their rents, uh, you're going to have a tsunami potentially of foreclosures coming. And even on the financing arena, where you would expect a lot of borrowers to be able to take advantage of the historically low rates. Yes, until this COVID crisis, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac backed loans, which were a large portion of government loans. One could essentially, um, you know, one could, what, what, one could buy originating loans or one could refinance at these historically low rates as long as the loan was not a jumbo loan. And the jumbo loan amounts have been somewhat raised over the years. So uh, in California, the, the valuation of properties is so high that, frankly, even a large portion now of, of loans are going to be in the 500 plus thousand range. 
The cutoff for a jumbo loan right now is about 504000 So what you're seeing is a reluctance on the big lender's part to finance these loans. A lot of borrowers, even with exceptional credit, trying to get refinances right now to take advantage of the low rates. And lo and behold, they're not able to do it. And it's because the COVID crisis has already created a huge uh, bottleneck in the entire investment uh, market so that the very high end of the market, it is so over-leveraged now with the massive trillions in debt just added within the last month or two that essentially it might be an overstatement to say that market is frozen. Uh, it's on life support. I think that would be a fair statement. And so a lot of borrowers who are needing to refinance, especially now, a lot of whom are not going to have work and don't have work and are recently unemployed. They're not going to be able to pay their jumbo mortgages. They're not going to be able to refinance. And this is the environment we're in. So one doesn't want to bring the news that we're looking at another round of foreclosures. But as Neil has said, and I will myself amplify, don't think that there won't be proverbial blood in the streets with the next round of foreclosures uh, because the fundamental rules have not changed. The COVID period has been a little bit of a hiatus, but that's it. The way evictions are being handled in California is somewhat of an allegory for the whole foreclosure process right now. Yes, there's a little bit of a law. Yes, there's protection in a very superficial way whereby you can't be evicted literally during this time. On the other hand, it's not as if the financing and the monthly payments, whether they be rent, whether they be mortgages, it's not as if those are just being, like, finessed away or disappeared. No, they are not. And even the late charges during this period, in many cases, are going to be upheld. So if some owner finds himself, for instance, in the mortgage front, getting behind now, it's not as if when he or she goes two or three months down over a period of time that, lo and behold, three months from now, at that point, a lot of states will have lifted their COVID orders. They will have lifted their shelter-in-place orders. Uh, but when that borrower goes back in front of the lender, they're going to be responsible for not only all those months of mortgage payments, they might even be responsible for the mortgage uh, late payments and everything else at this point. So uh, that's that's where the front is. I'd like to give uh, a more kind of uh, inspiring uh, report and and one that would say that uh, this period is a genuine respite. However, this show is about reality and this show is, do, is, is about conveying what borrowers need to do to take uh, their legal position to defend themselves against what the what the big lending institutions are doing with these securitized loans 
And yes, right now, it's going to be more important more than ever for uh, borrowers to look at what's happening on the COVID front and every other front uh, related to their mortgage because it's a moving target and there is a lot going on. And uh, Bill, why don't you jump in and and talk to uh, our listeners about this tracing concept? Well, yeah, it, obviously it's a, it's a very complex topic, and uh, we're probably going to have to hold a show on this uh, at a future date to really go into more detail on it. But, you know, everything you're talking about, uh, you know, just last year the head of the FBI gave a, a lecture to uh, the banking uh, finance wing of the uh, – you know, in, in Washington, D.C., basically spelling out the – loopholes that we've uh that the fbi and everybody else myself included as an investigator have not been able to crack these uh these nuts so to speak in terms of identifying uh beneficiaries of entities or these trusts or all these financial transactions and they're basically spelling out uh verbatim uh what these entities are getting away with and how this is such a massive money laundering threat, so on and so forth, and it's exactly what you know we see and deal with every single day. We know this is going on, and what's happened now when the, when the money flow stops in this great giant Ponzi scheme, uh, it really ex- it's going to expose, I mean, the offshoots and the, the thousands of other little tinier schemes that are going on, Ponzi schemes and everything, and, and this is going to get... Um, well, and maybe in a good way, is that a lot of these schemes are going to be exposed, they're going to come crashing down, and when they do so, and the people start uh, ratting each other out, so to speak, and they start giving the details to the schemes, to investigators and and the courts and everything else, we're going to, we're going to be able to uh, sift through those spoils, so to speak, and really uh, get a lot of valuable information to assist in, in uh really hammering home the big picture of and proving exactly uh, what's going on beyond any sort of theory or speculation. So when we talk about tracing, what you'll look at in a lot of the past investor lawsuits against these securitized uh, parties that were uh, putting these trusts together back in the day, and I'm sure it's still going on to this day because uh, it's been very profitable over time and uh, nobody's gone to jail, but you look at some of the wording in those investor suits, and they use uh, the terms, and the court puts it right in some of their orders and stuff. They say that the investors are seeking uh, claims, damages, whatnot, return of money um, based on traceable uh, their, their money traceable to these transactions. They're not specifically saying that, you know, we put money into this transaction and these specific things happens. All they're really saying is we gave you a whole, we gave you billions of dollars, and all we can do is really trace it to what we believe where it sits. And that's kind of where it starts. And so it's kind of an interesting term when they use traceable because tracing is really uh, – it's a process, really, to uh, for parties to kind of determine what happened to their property uh, and and how maybe uh, so. Using an example, if you gave a person a thousand dollars to hold for party A, you gave them thousand dollars to put in, in trust into an account to hold for you, and they took that 
money without your blessing and invested it or bought property or a, a painting or whatnot, and that painting appreciated to worth a million dollars and so on and so forth, do you have rights to go after the uh, that painting as an asset or its appreciative elements, so on and so forth? Um, the other way is to to trace, you know, when you say property, it's also your payments that you're sending to the servicer every month. So uh, we've always said that we haven't been able to trace what happens to the payment from the servicer to the alleged investor. It seems to stop right there, and the servicer basically has no uh, verifiable, traceable accounting from what happens uh, with the money from that point. Well, I believe now that there are some tricks that can be done to determine uh, what happened to the proceeds of the sale of your home, where this money is gone once you've sent it to the servicer. I think um, these are going to lie, uh, these tricks are going to lie a lot of it in the tax codes, and it's all going to be in the tax documents that are sent to you. Oh, that's, oh, that's really yep. good. That's really good information. We're going to have to leave it there. Uh, yes, we will definitely revisit the tracing concepts on another show. And thank you, Bill. And Neil will be back next week. Thanks, Charles. The opinions expressed on The Neil Garfield Show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities. For more information about Neil, the blog, or upcoming seminars, please visit livinglies.me. Give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to n-e-i-l-f-g-a-r-f-i-e-l-d at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Neil Garfield Show. If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me.